Today's guest is Chris Field. I don't even really know where to start with Chris. He is so many things and fulfills so many roles. He is a husband, a father, a runner, a race director, an author, a nonprofit director, and on and on. Basically though, Chris is a doer. He fills needs, he shows up, he takes action. In this episode, we talk about Chris's new book, A Billion Hours of Good. I read the book right before it launched, and it is a life changer. Chris explains how you do not need all your ducks in a row before you decide to do good and bring change to your community. You just need 1% of your day and whatever skills and resources you already have. With his book, you'll learn how to grow compassion, find courage, and ignite your creativity. So when you're done with this episode, I strongly encourage you to read A Billion Hours of Good. I have a link to the listing on Amazon in my show notes, and I also have a link to Chris's Facebook page and the nonprofit he founded, The Mercy Project. Also in the show notes, I have two more links. One is to UCAN's website. UCAN is sponsoring this episode, and I have been using UCAN products for more than a year now. I started in early 2020 when Erica Kirkwood, who ran in the Olympic marathon trials last year, recommended the products to me. UCAN has a wide variety of products designed specifically for runners, cyclists, endurance athletes, gels, super starch, energy bars, nut butter, etc., Check them out. They work and they don't make you sick afterward. I also have a link to the donation site for Our Lady of the Angels. I am running the Chicago Marathon in October and I'm raising money for Mission Our Lady of the Angels. If you don't know about the mission, go back and listen to either or both of my episodes with Sister Stephanie Beliga. She is a sister at the mission and she heads up a team of runners at the Chicago Marathon to raise money for the mission. They do a lot of good. Any money you donate will go straight to the mission and I will pay my own costs for the race. So none of your donations will go to me. So check out those show notes. Okay, here's Chris. Chris, there's there's so much to talk about because you're a runner, a race director, a father, a husband, you run a nonprofit, an author. But since you just had this big book launch, do you want to start with that? Yeah, that sounds perfect. Definitely the thing that's been on my mind the last few days, certainly. I bet. Um, a billion hours of good. So, you know, I think I started following you on Facebook a couple years ago. I have a friend named Stephanie Cook, and she's just really big fan of yours. <laughs> so she told me to follow you. And when the book came up, she and I both jumped at the opportunity to be on the book uh, preview team. So how how is it going, the big launch? It's been great. Yeah, the book launch, June 8th. And... Really positive response. So, I mean, several, several. There's always a lag before you know exactly your sales numbers. But I mean, we've sold probably close to five thousand copies between oh, wow. pre-launch and launch week, and it's been great. You know, I mean, a, a number of book sales is really a number that just helps you see how far your marketing has gone. But the the piece of feedback that's the most valuable for me is when people who are on the early reading team like you and Steph and others, you know, when people start sending you private messages talking about the way they're beginning to view the world differently because of what they read in the book. You know, for me, I mean, that's that's really – that matters a lot more than how many number of books you sell is are people really taking – the book and is it helping spur them to real tangible action? So the feedback has been super positive. 
feels like it's really helped shape people's worldview and kind of given them a new paradigm, a new way of looking at the world. And I mean, as an author, I mean, that's the greatest gift anyone can give you is just to say like, hey, these these words you wrote really mattered and, and I'm doing something with them. So it's been really encouraging. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah, I, the, the when I left my Amazon review yesterday, some of the reviews I had already that were already popping up, you know, just great reviews. <laughs> so, and and I know what the book meant to me, and I know my reaction to it and all about it. But for someone who who doesn't know you, doesn't know what you do, and hasn't read it yet, um, tell us what the book is about. So, a billion hours of good is really. It's a movement, and it's a movement to remind us all that so many of us are waiting for all of the stars to align for us to do that thing we want to do. And I've yet to meet a person that doesn't have some interest in doing good, doing more good, helping people, helping more people, making choices and spending their life in a way that matters. Now, that doesn't mean the same thing to all of us. And we don't all have the same interests and we don't all have the same passions. And not everyone wants to do that at the same scale. But I've yet to meet a person that doesn't say, yes, I would like to know my life mattered and that I did some good. It wasn't just about me. Mm-hmm. Yet, <laughs> that's almost always followed with a but dot, 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 right? And People will say, you know, all kinds of reasons that that's not happening, but it almost always boils down to they don't feel like they have enough time and they don't know where to start. Even if they did have time, where would they even start? And so a billion hours of good changing the world 14 minutes at a time is really dismantling both of those objections right? and saying, listen, 1% of your day is 14 minutes. So let's find that amount of time, which we can easily do. And then let's just start using that 14 minutes right where you are with what you have. And I think what's crazy is, you know, we we think of these grand moments of helping, you know, like, okay, when I retire, I want to spend my retirement doing this thing or, you know, I'm going to pick this one year, one day a year, I'm going to spend a, a day in service, you know, and, and we, we kind of we lead everything up to these kind of mountaintop moments. And the irony is that when we do that, we're limiting the amount of good we can do just by sheer volume. I mean, retirement is at the very end of most of our careers. And that one day year is it's eight hours in in the whole year. And so when you take 14 minutes a day, which is almost nothing, and you take it across an entire year, that's actually 85 hours that you would spend in an entire year, two, two full 40-hour weeks. Right. So if you said to most people, hey, this year I'd like you to have the goal of spending two full weeks just doing good for other people, they would laugh out loud. I mean they'd be like, there's no way. It's impossible. But if you said, hey, I want you to do a tiny little bit of good every single day, just 14 minutes at a time. But I want to make sure you do that every single day and kind of almost accidentally or without realizing it, they end up doing two full weeks worth of good. And then you multiply that over a career. You're talking two, three, four thousand hours 
of good in just 14 minute chunks. I mean, that's more good than, than most people would ever get around to doing, but never in a way that seems to encroach on their normal day to day, never in a way that seems to dominate. It just becomes a rhythm in their life and in a part of who they are and a part of what they do every day. Yeah. And I, and I love that. Okay. So I'm a big person who thinks I'm too busy. You know, one of those people. And when I started, when I picked up the book and I wanted to read it and picked it up and thought, okay, but uh, where am I going to find 14 minutes a day? Because 14 minutes a day sure, still seems like a lot to me. (laughs) And, you know, you got to the chapter about time-saving tips. And honest, I'm going to be very honest with you. When I started that chapter, I thought, he's not going to tell me anything to you. Like I do not have, and then I I do not have an extra 14 minutes a day. And then I actually read the chapter. I was like, well, you know what? I may have a lot more than 14 minutes a day. These are actually really good tips, little things that you don't think about, which, you know, simple actions that don't seem to take a lot. But then when you add up the, you know, the cumulative time over a day that you spend doing simple tasks that could have been planned better, um, yeah, we have the time. Totally. Yeah. And I think the irony is that for so many of us, I mean, we, we truly, we waste more time in a day than we can really even wrap our minds around. I mean, just these little moments here and there of inefficiency, we're not, we're not structured, we're not focused. We don't really know what we're trying to accomplish in that moment. You know, we end up getting on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram, clicking through the channels, and all of a sudden we look up and it's been 30, 45, 60, 90 minutes. And, right. And we know when we walk away that that didn't enhance our life in any way. Like we all feel that same sinking feeling of like, oh gosh. But for so many of us, I, I believe it's that we don't have anything to replace that with. So it's like, well, we justify it. Like, well, what would, what would I have done with that 30, 60, 90 minutes, right? Like, I mean, I didn't have anything to do anyways. And it's like, the beauty of this is if we can replace that mindlessness, that numbing that we do with something that's actually meaningful, not only do we actually make the life of somebody else better in whatever way we choose to do good for the world, but we also make our own lives better because we become better human beings. We become better at all of the the big stuff, quote unquote, that matters by proxy of doing the little stuff Mm -hmm. that matters. And so, I mean, it's this, it's one of the few like real win, win, wins, I think like in the, in the universe, you know, where, it actually is truly like everyone's life is enhanced because we added this important thing to our day. Right, exactly. And I and I love the case studies in there. And, you know, I don't want to give too much away because I want people to, to read the book. But there's there's a, a case study in there about a, a paraprofessional at a school. And that one, like when I finished that chapter, I, I, I put the book down and I repeated it word for word to my husband. And then I called my mom and I told her because – you know, we've got we've got two things here. We've got the cumulative effect of of little bitty pieces of your day that are probably being wasted, but then the cumulative effect of doing a, a little bit of good every day. And with that that story about that man who works at the school, yep. you, you can take a very little bit 
and do a whole lot with it. Yep. Yeah, I think, I mean, let, when, I, when I stumbled upon Lester Banks' story, you know, here's a paraprofessional at a school. I mean, we, we already know teachers are underpaid notoriously. And so now you take a staff position at a school that's on the, on the org chart would be even lower than a teacher for mm-hmm. compensation. And then you look and see that here's a guy that is giving away thousands of dollars in scholarships. And, and because he's been so faithful and doing it year after year after year, he's actually given away like tens of thousands of dollars in scholarships and hundreds of students. I mean, it's like the perfect example of me, you know, I say it in the chapter, so many of us, especially if you got any college scholarship, you, it's like a, like a life dream that you would be able to, you know, endow a scholarship or something in your life, right? It's like, you know how much that means to a student in need. But for so many of us, 99% of people will never get around to it. And the other 1% will almost always wait until like late in their career or retirement, you know, to do it. And here's a guy that's like literally selling concessions <laughs> at basketball games and using the proceeds to fund a scholarship and taking a little bit out of every paycheck. And I promise you, like his paychecks are very small. I mean, many of us probably get withheld from our paychecks what his whole paycheck is. Mm -hmm. And so he's taking like this tiny little bit out of a tiny little bit. (laughs) You know, he didn't have much to start with and he's taking this little bit and it's just like, just faith, such faithful stewardship of really believing in starting where you are with what you have um, instead of waiting until you have, you know, some some grand amount. So, yeah, I, I love that story because I really think it personifies this idea that the only way to move forward is to is to move forward. Right. right. The only way to to go where we want to go. It's just like in running. I mean, I just ran up, as you know, I just did a big 63 mile uh, ultra marathon on a track here in, in my hometown. And, you know, my favorite ultra running mantra is like the only way forward is forward. Mm -hmm. Like that's, that's my personal mantra. Like when I don't feel like keeping going, I'm like, look, you just got to keep going. Like you don't have to go fast. You just have to keep going forward. Like that's the only option at this point. So I feel like that story of Lester really personifies the amount does not matter nearly as much as the constant, persistent forward progress. And when you talk about that forward progress, like that, what he does, the, you know, the, the few dollars per check and how that's translated into tens of thousands of dollars over time. I mean, and we can't stop there because then that think of each individual who has been a beneficiary of a scholarship and what they've been able to. I mean, it's just this ripple effect that goes on and on and on. Yeah. I mean, if you got a college scholarship that was given to you by a guy that, you know, probably makes 25 grand a year and you go on to become an accountant or a lawyer or a business owner and you're making six figures, do you not think that makes you 
a much more generous person because you've actually seen and felt with your own eyes in your own life what like truly sacrificial giving looks like, right? Like right. it's been modeled for you. And you, I mean, the, the chances of that person just inherently being more generous, right? Because generosity begets generosity. I mean, when we see someone do good, we're so much more likely to do good ourselves. It's like someone pays for someone else's coffee at the coffee shop in town, right? They, they, whoever's that first person to say, Hey, I want to pay for mine. And I also want to pay for the car behind me. And then it begins this chain and no one wants to be the one to break the chain. Right. It can go on for hours and hours and hours. Yeah. Even, even though no one who pulled into that line had an inkling that they were going to do anything kind that moment, they, they weren't prepared to do that. And almost certainly half of those people just statistically paid more than they would have paid for their own coffee, right? Mm -hmm. Like just statistics and a couple people, probably a lot more, right? You got the one person in line in front of the person buying for eight people in the office. And yet they are inspired in such a tangible way that, that when the clerk says, hey, so the, the car in front of you paid for your coffee, this is actually the 39th car in a row to do that. It's been going for about two weeks, or sorry, two hours. They said, oh my gosh, like, I, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part of that. I want to I walk into that light. I want to I feel the warmth of that goodness. Like, it's like we're all so hungry for this. We're all cold. We're all shivering. We're all trying to find mittens and a jacket. We don't realize it until we walk up onto a campfire. Mm -hmm. And then when we walk up into that warmth and that light, we're like, oh my gosh, this is what I've been looking for the whole time and I didn't even know it. Right. And and so someone says like, hey, do you want to stay at the campfire? We're like, oh my gosh, yes, I want to stay at the campfire. Not only that, like I want to pull the next person into the campfire too. Now that I'm here, I'm remembering and I'm reminded in my own passion for doing good has been rekindled. Like, I don't want this to stop with me being the last person who makes it here. And so, gosh, I just, I mean, what a beautiful way to live our lives, to be the, the first domino, to be that first person who pays for that first cup of coffee and to trust that we'll never know which car it ends at or all the cars in between, but to know that what we did really matters and that there are people whose lives are impacted because we chose to be the first one to say yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, I love that. And I love the analogy of the campfire. That's perfect. Um, so how did you get, how did you get to the point of a billion hours of good? Like, you know, the, uh, the know-how and the, the built, built up of compassion and the creativity when did you get to the point where you could write write this book and wanted to write it? Oh gosh, um, I don't know. I mean, you know, I think that I think that I've been trying to to do a lot of these things, but without. I mean, it didn't have a name or it didn't have a cause. It didn't have a. There was no ulterior motive. It was just. I mean, I, I've always wanted. I have this fear, or I did, I should say. 
um, when I was young, that younger, meaning like high school and into college of like, I just didn't want to live a life that was insignificant. Yeah. Like for whatever reason, I just had this sense of like, man, I only get one shot at doing this. I really, really don't want my life to get to the end and it was only about me and I just kept making sure I had mine and and everyone else could kind of fend for themselves and it was like I just wanted my life to matter and for it to mean something and so I've I've always tried to live that way and and sometimes I do that well sometimes I fail and often I fail and early on I discovered though how hungry other people were for this kind of activity that what seemed to come fairly naturally for me when it came to finding these creative ways to to serve and to engage and to care for other people, it didn't seem to come as easily for other people, just like running or basketball or accounting or calculus might come easy for some people. It was like, this was just like in my wheelhouse. It felt like I was born to, you know, to do this. And so, so I just started doing it. And, and along the way, I started sharing with other people as as I did it because I found that they were responding really positively like, oh, I'm going to go do that same thing or, oh, thanks for the idea. You know, when when like just as a tiny example, you know, COVID came and all the grocery store employees who still had to show up for work and everybody else was locked down and they're just, you know, I mean, people are buying everything at the grocery stores and it's like, they're having to restock and it's just insane. And I'm like, oh man. So, you know, I like call my favorite pizza, local pizza place. So they're struggling too, right? Because of uh, no one can dine in. And I order 25 pizzas and I send them to my favorite grocery store here in town and have them delivered to the employee break room. And, you know, so I just post about it on Facebook like, hey, you know, shout out to my friends at Howdy's Pizza and shout out to my friends at HEB Tower Point. You guys are the real MVPs, you know, hang in there. We're cheering you on. And, you know, then I have people in other towns that are like messaging me like, dude, I love this. I just did the same thing in my town. And, you know, and it's like I just once you see that people are so hungry for this kind of thing, it just encourages you to want to do it more. And and you're not doing it alone. I mean, other people are kind of joining that that movement with you, that unofficial movement. So. As I saw that happening, I just thought, gosh, you know, it feels like people are hungry for this. What if I kind of put these ideals into written form as just one more way to try to get out in front of people and to inspire them to to do as much good as possible where they are and with what they have? Right. And I, I so want to get into that a little bit more because that was that was my favorite thing about the book, because. You know, you've got you've got great case studies in there. You've got great reasons why you should do good. But and I feel like I feel like it's easy to find inspiration and motivation, but what's not easy is to find an actual like how to carry that out. And I you know, I'm a Christian and I'll hear a good sermon and I'm inspired to share the love of Jesus with those around me, but then it's like, but how? You know, like do, you know, I'm not gonna go up to a random person and be like Hey, Jesus loves you. Um, And so whenever I'm inspired, I then feel like I I stall because action is finding a way to carry out something. The actual action is harder than just being inspired. 
Um, so I'm always looking for, for the how. And, you know, I'm, the, the Bible says too much is given, much is required. And I've been given a good life. And I feel there's a lot of required of me, but I don't know what to do. And so what I was really, really just happy about with the book is that it does that. It doesn't just say, hey, do good be more compassionate, be more right. courageous. It actually tells you how you can build compassion. If you feel like you're not a compassionate enough person, there's a, there's a way to actually become more compassionate, how to build core courage and how to become creative, creative, how to create a plan, execute the plan. And that was pure gold to me. The These are the steps you can take. Here is charts for you. Here, is, out, here are outlines for you. A billion hours of good is actually doable. It wasn't just you know, a motivational speech. It was an actual battle plan. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's the struggle we all have, right? Is how do we move from the, okay, yes, I know that's the kind of human being I want to be, but like I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to have 37 appointments and 200 emails and 12 phone calls and my kids are going to need me to take an extra pair of school uh, – close to their school because they got muddy. I mean, like life happens. And so how do we take what we know we want to be about and actually do it with all of this other life happening? And so, I mean, I'm, I'm grateful that you felt that was in the book because, I mean, I feel like that's the gap that's missing for so many of us. It's like, yeah, okay. Yeah, I want to do good. Okay, great. I can do it in just a little bit of time, but how, but where, but when? And, you know, for me, we, we, we completely overthink this. I mean, we, we all have something we're good at already. Most of us, it's why it's how we get paid. It's why we have a house and cars and money is because we do something better than the average person. So why don't we do that thing to help other people in addition to doing it as part of our regular job? You know, I mean, I'm always so baffled. I'll meet some. Well, let's use you as a case study. I don't. I don't know a ton about you in, in real life. So, tell me what you do for a job. I'm a lawyer. Okay. What kind of law? Um, just general civil. Okay. So obviously, the the obvious answer here is you could do some sort of pro bono law, right? Which is like the lowest hanging fruit possible. Okay. But that that's complicated. There's your firm might have rules about that. Your county might not need you, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so let's pretend for whatever reason that you do that and you want to do more or you don't do that and there's a specific reason why, okay? What else, what what skills are lawyers great at? Uh, speaking and writing. Right. So what would keep you from going to your local Boys and Girls Club and offering to teach a public speaking course to the young people there or to go to your community center or a place that serves low-income families, the food bank, seeing if there's a way to engage uh, young single moms in the community with brushing up their resumes and prepping them for interviews because you know how to be confident and comfortable in, in front of people and to put your best foot forward. I mean, that's an interview is making a case, right? Like that's yeah. what you do in, a, in an interview. Like what do lawyers know better than 
pulling the stuff that benefits you out of a case and minimizing the stuff that doesn't benefit you, right? Like you don't you don't lie, but you definitely draw out the stuff that's positive for your client, right? Yeah, exactly. Exact same thing you do in a job interview. Well, aren't there people in every town that don't really know how to do job interviews and they're probably good-hearted people that would probably do a pretty good job, but they're terrible in an interview room because they've never had someone teach them. I mean, I'm just riffing here, but like that has nothing to do with you being a lawyer. That has nothing to do with your firm's rules around pro bono. It has nothing to do with the state bar's rules around pro bono. That's just you saying, what do I already do really well and who in my community might need that thing? And then just showing up and doing that thing. I think the beauty is, I bet you know a few other attorneys in your town. And I bet they also would like to do good. And so if you actually create this conduit of doing good and then invite them along with you, there is a overwhelmingly high probability that they're going to come along with you. And now you're not helping five or seven people with job uh, interview training. You're now helping 25 people. And by the way, I bet a lot of law firms are hiring people and struggling to find good employees. So talk about it coming back and being a benefit to you. What if you cherry picked the best candidates before they ever got out into the job market? Right, exactly, for our firm, yeah. Exactly, because you're like, oh my gosh, this lady is unbelievable. Like, we need her to work for us. Let's just teach her how to do the job. I mean, I just, this is a perfect, we didn't plan this, by the way. Like, this is, I had no time to prep my answer to you. I didn't have some plan of how to say this to you, but I literally just demonstrated for you the ultimate win, win, win. Right. Yeah, you did. I'm impressed. (laughs) But that's what happens when you do this. It's like you do the right thing. You give people a chance. You put yourself out there and not, it's, it's certainly going to benefit them. But there's a really good chance it's going to come back to be something that benefits you as well. Even if the only way it benefits you is just that it makes you a more complete, fulfilled person who feels more at peace in your own life because you're not just living it for yourself. Right. And and something else you said, you know, I'm, I'm thinking and, and even if even if, you know, I, I wouldn't find anybody to hire at my office. Just the relationships, you know, getting to know people, getting to know stories. You just become a, a better person when Absolutely. you hear other people's stories. You know, you just become less judgy, less, yeah. you know, um, getting inside a person's story, why they need a job, where they are, who they are. You start to realize that that people, instead of just looking at people as, you know, a mass walking around outside, it's an, it's an actual individual person with needs and desires and it just makes you i think a more humble person absolutely yeah i mean we become better human beings when we hear the stories of other people and we we become more comfortable with our own stories more honest about our own stories as we engage the stories of those around us so i mean it's it's truly a win-win in all those different ways so I want to go into, you said, with our own stories. So in your book, you know, I want to talk a little bit about your story. Um, you were, I loved it that you were open and honest in the book about 
you know, failures or misdirections. And it gave an honest approach to why you know what you're talking about. So can you share some of that? Yeah, I mean, for me, just we've avoided the topic of failure so much. And really, that's been at our own demise, right? Like, so anytime we're not talking about something, it ends up hurting us because that thing is happening and it's going to happen. It just ends up happening in a vacuum where we, we, we can't learn from it and we can't learn from each other and we can't minimize the number of mistakes that we make because we're all doing it together. And so, you know, I tried to be honest in the book. I mean, no one buys a book by the way from an author that they think is a failure. So there's this weird fine line where, I guess for better or worse, people have to have some sense that you've you've got some marginal success or they're probably not going to to buy your book in the first place, which that's a conversation for another day. But that being said, once people had my book in their hands, I wanted them to understand like I have all kinds of failures. You know, there's tons of stuff that I've done and failed and and I don't actually think that makes me a worse person to write the book. I think it makes me a better person to write the book because those because I've tried to allow those failures to shape and to form me instead of being something that I avoid or hide from or pretend isn't happening. So mm-hmm. I think there's something really healthy for all of us about owning our failures and just being more more true and more open and more vulnerable with one another about who we are as human beings, both at our best and at our worst, because we're all experiencing those things in real time. Well, and we, there, we when you meet someone who you think just always gets it right, yeah. then you think, okay, well, that can't be me because I've That's messed right. up, right? You know, so motivating. Yeah. yeah, I need somebody to tell me, oh, no, I've done it wrong a few times and it's okay totally. because I got back up again and right. made something of it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really hard to follow, try to follow someone that you feel like, you know, is never struggling, right? I mean, some of the people who make some of the worst teachers are the ones that things come the most easily for and we want to know somebody struggled like we want to know that somebody had to fight and work and and grind to make it happen because that's we see ourselves in that story and it makes us feel better when that happens yeah i've got um our chamber our lovekin chamber of commerce has a program called leadership lovekin Mm -hmm. that they put on every year for professionals in town and I'm on the committee so I help organize it and the day that I'm over there's a businessman in Lovekin successful has revitalized single-handedly revitalized downtown Lovekin and if you know him around here then you know hey this guy has a lot of great businesses he's been very successful he's done well for himself but I have him speak every year to the leadership Lovekin class for leadership training Uh, the day that I'm in charge of. And he's been a big hit because everybody knows his successes. So he loves to tell the story. He loves to talk about his failures. I mean, he has this whole story of these, this is how long it took me to get here. And these are 
all the things I did wrong. This is all the money I lost. These are all the bad decisions I made. And that's why I can do this now. That's why I have successful businesses now because I had to learn. I had to grow. I had to learn. And I can tell you all the things not to do. I'm an expert for the way not to build a business. And he's been a big hit with the students because, you know, you you see him and you think, oh, what he's done is unachievable. He's just had luck or no, he hasn't had luck. He he had a lot of trial and error. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that makes it it makes it feel like you maybe can actually do something if you see somebody like you that actually did something. You know, it gives you hope that maybe you too can accomplish something that you didn't think was possible. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, you, you talk about that, getting back up again, forging ahead, that's hard and why it's important to do hard things, to own mistakes, do hard things, earn some grit. And that's... Loved your chapters about uh, grit and your, I think about your grandmother and how people used to just have a lot more grit. So now we have to earn it. (laughs) So can you tell me a little bit about the work in Ghana? Yeah. So Mercy Project is the name of the nonprofit that I started in Ghana, my wife and I, about 10 years ago. And really all started, I read a book about child trafficking and didn't know anything about it. I didn't know it existed. I didn't know it was a real thing. I was overwhelmed by that reality and really just shocked and broken that that was a thing. And so I Googled the author, got her phone number, called her, showed up in Ghana with her and saw for myself, you know, what was happening and was just, I mean, crushed by that by that reality and um, just really kind of went home trying to figure out, okay, is, is this something that I can actually make a difference on? Like how does just a regular guy like me, you know, make a difference? And so I did what a lot of people might do in that situation. And I started uh, fundraising and giving that money back to, another organization. And along the way, I discovered that no one was really getting at the root cause of that child trafficking, that child slavery in Ghana and kind of put me at a crossroads. Like, well, do I just say that's too bad? I did, I did more than most people and I just move on or, um, you know, do I try to actually do something, you know, do I actually try to do something about this? And so we, you know, we did the latter of the two. So 10 years ago, we started Mercy Project officially, and we've rescued almost 200 children now out of child trafficking in Ghana, reunited them back into their families. And in, in, in doing that, we've gone into these fishing communities where the children were working as slaves doing uh, child labor or fishing. And we've taught these fishing communities how to do aquaculture or cage fishing to actually replace the need for the children in the first place. And um, in doing that, we've helped them actually make more money than they were making with the labor of the children. And they voluntarily released those kids back into their families. So it's another example of one of those, you know, win, win, wins um, that, you know, I think are just so, so impactful. Wow. Yeah, that's that part's really cool, too. Instead of just, okay, you know, let me take care of a symptom. Let me actually figure out why they feel the need 
to do this and cut it off there. Right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that wasn't, that's not going to work. Right. I mean, we know that, um, if we're going to really solve a problem forever, it's going to have to be a problem that we're going to have to get at the root cause. Right. And and I mean, that's, I think what's made our work in Ghana so powerful and effective is that's exactly what we've gone about trying to do. So, this is what I'm really curious about. Did you ever feel when, when you decided when you read that book about Ghana and you felt this, you know, punch to your gut and this, oh, I've got I've got to do something. Did you ever feel overwhelmed with the idea of trying to do something about it? Like this, this is I'm one person and I'm not, you know, I don't have Bill Gates money. Right. This, this is too much for me to take on. Was there ever any thoughts like that? I mean, honestly, there wasn't. I mean, I don't, and maybe that makes me some sort of monster, right? Like I might be insane in some way because, I mean, I I never even considered that it might not work. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I had a sense of scale of how big it would grow or how successful it maybe be on paper. But I mean, to me, it felt so much more. I wanted to try and fail more than I wanted to not try and save face, Mm -hmm. right? So for me, it was like, look, somebody has to do something about this. Why not me? I mean, like, what am I, I, what else? I mean, what am I sitting around waiting for? Like, I'll try and I'll try to, to gather people and kind of be the, the lightning rod of saying, Hey, who's going to join me on this? You know, I mean, you know, and I think the irony and I, I think I mentioned this in the book is, you know, that the book that I read that first inspired me, I mean, it was a New York Times bestseller and the author went on Oprah Winfrey's show. And yet, I don't know of any other single nonprofit that spawned out of reading that book. And so like, who, I was like the least qualified person of all. I mean, I was 27 years old. I didn't know anybody with money. I was a pastor. I didn't have any money. But like I was I was willing to show up. Right. First in Ghana and then, you know, back in the United States to kind of be the one telling that story and asking people to come along with me. And I just I think there's something like really hilarious about that it was like I won the prize because I was the only one that showed up. <laughs> you know, <laughs> everyone else assumed like, oh, that contest is too hard, or right. that prize is too much. Like, I could never do that. It's like just by default, I ended up building this great thing because I was the only one, maybe dumb enough to show up, right, or arrogant enough. Who knows? But, but like, there was nothing unique or special about me. I mean, Oprah, come on, like, right. What's- as net worth. I mean, geez, like, you know, I mean, any host of people, how many people, millions of people probably saw that episode of Oprah, you know, and, and why did I show up? I don't know. I mean, but, but I did. And, and because of that, you know, everything changed. And, and what we know now and what we see now and what happens now in Ghana is a direct result of that first willingness to show up. Right. So, and I'm just 
going to get personal here with me because I'm thinking, you know what? I've got you on the phone. I have your attention. So I, you know, for whatever this podcast is supposed to be, I can take this opportunity to to ask something that I want to ask that could help me. So I, part of, part of my practice and a lot of people listen to this podcast have heard me talk about it a lot, but is so years ago I was sitting, sitting in a courtroom. I was a young lawyer and I, um, there was another lawyer in my firm who had a CPS case that day. She represented a, a foster child in CPS care. And yeah. she she had something come up. She asked me to go cover it for her. I had never done that before. I right. went because she was my boss, essentially. Like, what, what right. was I going to do as a newly licensed attorney? And I'm sitting there in court. And the judge says, oh, Ms. Riley, so nice to have you today covering for Ms. Wells. While I have you in here... And he asks in front of the whole courtroom, he said, can I add you to my appointments list to take CPS yes. cases? Well, yeah. I mean, I'm going to be very honest. I wanted to say no. Of course. Right. But, you know, he's staring at me. Everybody's staring at me. And I said, well, uh, yes, sir. Of course you can. And so I got, I would say, initially thought, you know, stuck with those cases for a while. Well, it, it turned into a big eye opener for me. Learned a lot about a part of the community that I didn't know about um, definitely increased my compassion when I saw cycles and stories of trauma and abuse that, you know, I didn't, I didn't know about before. Right. One thing led to another and my husband and I eventually became foster parents. We fostered a child and we adopted her. We adopted her in that same courtroom where that judge put me on the spot so many years before. Uh, and so that all led, you know, I always think, well, that was God. That was God making me be in that courtroom yeah. that day to be put on the spot because that would have never led to this. But at this, but it, it continues to just gnaw at me because I keep up with numbers in foster care and up for adoption. And I am so bothered by the fact that there are, you know, at any given time, a hundred thousand kids available for adoption eligible. That's, that's not the number in foster care. There's, you know, usually about four to 500,000 kids in foster care in America on any given day, but there's about a hundred thousand that, that number stays pretty steady eligible for adoption. And many of them won't get adopted. You know, there's numerous kids who age out of foster care every day without any permanency. And I'm constantly just, just bemoaning that fact at home. And, you know, my son just says, well, mom, what are we, what are we supposed to do? We can, we can't adopt 100,000 kids. I said, I know, but there has to be something and I, I haven't figured it out yet but I feel like you know I just feel this this burden this tugging and I I feel upset that we live in such a great country that is wealthy and for every bad household there are so many more good households and how do we how do we rally <laughs> this this country to take care of these kids and so that's why I asked if, if you ever got overwhelmed because whenever I I think about it, then there's just this, oh my goodness, how are, how are you going to get 100,000 kids adopted? Because I I am not happy that there are any kids eligible for adoption. There should be, in America, there should be no kids eligible. I mean, we should be 
we are able, we have the people in this country to adopt every single one of those kids. Right. And But I just don't know. It's just, and when I get overwhelmed, then I just shut down because I think, because I cannot solve the problem entirely. Totally. I don't know. Right. I don't know what, if I can do anything. Right. So, I mean, here's the, I mean, here's my encouragement to you. If you can figure out a way in your little town to, it's not little, but you know what I'm saying, medium-sized town. Mm -hmm. You don't live in a huge New York City or Houston or something. So if you can figure out why the average family is reticent to foster slash adoption, what are those obstacles? What are those objections? And if you can create a case study with real people, and and basically over like in your own community overcome those objections like what is keeping people is it is it poor marketing is it that they don't understand the need is it that they 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 feel overwhelmed they don't feel like they can make a difference they don't feel prepared they don't feel like they have the resources they don't understand what's required i mean who knows i don't know what all those things are right but but Ask 50 people, hey, what would keep you from doing this? And then build out the common objections and figure out a way to overcome them. And if you can do that in your own town, and I'm not saying this is like a 30-day process, right? This is Mm -hmm. like a a year-long, two-year-long project. Look for other towns where – this has been overcome where it's almost become like a hallmark of pride for the town that this is like a part of the ethos of that town is, Hey, we rally together for our children and we don't just do that with bait on the little league field. And we don't just do that by making sure our school has new playground equipment. We also do that by showing up for the kids who don't have someone to show up for them. And it almost becomes like a part of the fabric of that community. Like I guarantee you there's cases of communities like that in America where that foster adoption rate is off the charts relative to the national average. So Mm -hmm. figure out what they did, what stories they told, how they told them, how they engaged people. And then take that own case study into your own community, overcome those objections in your own unique community. And then if you do that and you've kind of figured out a working system or process, then you can take that to other because there is a crystal in every city in America. And so if you show up as their divine answer to this problem they've also been struggling with, but they don't know how to answer. And now you begin teaching classes on how your town quadrupled your foster rate, families who were willing to foster, they're going to show up and learn from you because they care the same way that you care. And if you give them a step-by-step process, so I would say like think small to go big and you know, there was a study that was done a while back years and years and years ago where they pulled people into a room, they gave them $10 or something like that. And they, they showed up, they told them about a terrible problem in the world. Like, Hey, you know, there's a hundred thousand kids who will die today in Somalia because they don't have 
um, any food, would you like to give any of your $10 to helping those kids? Uh, and people gave a tiny bit of, of their money. Okay. They did the same experiment, brought in random people, gave them the same $10, and they said, hey, um, there's a little boy named Bobby that is going to die today in Somalia because um, he doesn't have food. Would you like to give any of your money? And people gave twice as much. <laughs> because and if, I think yeah. Sorry, if they go could, on. Yeah. They could focus on one kid. Right. Because Bobby was a real kid who needed someone to stand in the gap for him. And so what I'm saying to you is you need to look around Lufkin and you need to find a handful of bobbies. And, and I would never use that four or 500,000 number again, because how can, how can I, or you do anything about a four or 500,000 number? It's too much. Right. Just like it was overwhelming me. It's overwhelming everybody I mentioned it to. Everybody. So I want to know about a real kid that is getting killed right now by the system, getting their future is just being just crushed. And I want to know exactly how a regular, ordinary family that's never thought about fostering or adopting might actually be able to come alongside that kid. And I want to understand the risks and I want to understand the trauma and I want to understand the resources and I want to understand how it's going to make my family in the long term better, just like any hard thing. And, but I want to do it on a child by child basis. And you're going to have to figure out what resonates with people and what doesn't because right. Some stuff's going to terrify people and some stuff's going to thrill people. And right now you don't know which way is up and which way is down, mm -hmm. but you won't ever know that until you start having these conversations with people. And I, yeah, so that's all I would say. I love this. I'm so excited now because this, and this is simple. I mean, it, you know, this is doable. <laughs> and I can't believe I never thought about it either. I'm thinking, well, isn't that how we run marathons? Like instead of like focusing on, oh my goodness, I have 26.2 right. miles to run. You know, you just run one mile at a time. <laughs> so the even breaking it down further than that, I mean, I'd go backwards even further. You know, we start a training plan and we don't go all the way to three weeks out our biggest long run. Right. We start with our five-mile run or our three-mile yeah. run or one lap around the block. I mean, we start where we are. And right now, where you are is you don't know why people don't foster or adopt. So go become an expert on why people don't foster and adopt. And then when you understand the real problem, go become an expert on how to overcome those right. objections. Yeah. I mean, that's, that makes so much sense. That's perfect. Right. And that's doable. And I now know how to have, find 14 minutes a day to, you know, to, to find those answers. Yeah, totally. Okay. So I know you need to go, but I want to ask one thing. And since right, we brought great. running into this, okay. Yeah. So tell me about BCS this year. Going to happen? Yeah. So yeah, we had to cancel the BCS marathon in College Station this last year because of COVID, just like every other race. Yeah. And um, yeah, I mean, for us, uh, we're all systems are go at this point. We don't see any reason that the race wouldn't happen. I mean, 
uh, you know, all the vaccine is out there and people mm-hmm. who've chosen to get it are getting it and the rates of COVID are really low. And yeah, so we don't, we don't see any issue uh, with the race happening. So we plan on taking all the ideas we had last year that were going to be huge and crazy and fun and, you know, insanely just cool. And um, we're going to implement them this year. So it'll be year 10 and it's going to be a really fun year. So everybody should definitely plan to join us. Okay. Is registration open? Registration's open. Yeah. BCSmarathon.com. And what's the date? December? Uh, December. Oh, goodness. You, you put me on the spot. Oh, <laughs> have it in my head. Uh, December. Let's see. What is it? Hold on. It's a second Sunday. Always a second Sunday. December 12th this year. Okay. December 12th. Okay. Exciting. So that's a half marathon and a marathon. Yep. That's right. Awesome. Anything else you want to leave listeners with? No, I don't think so. I just hope that they are encouraged and that they believe that whatever it is that they want to do to make a difference, they're completely capable of, of doing that. And the only way forward is forward. And so I hope they'll take that first step and then the second and the third and the seventh and the 300th. And at some point they'll look up and they won't even remember when they started running. So, um, you know, but it all starts with that first step. So I hope they'll have the courage and compassion to take it. I love that. Thank you so much, Chris. I I really appreciate it. I know it's a big week for you and a busy week, but thank you for sitting down with me, not just for the podcast, but I feel like I I have a little bit of a game plan for (laughs) for what I want to do. Absolutely. Thanks for making the time and thanks for everything you do uh, to help so many people. It it really matters and I'm encouraged by you. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. You have a a good day. You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast and leave us a good rating and review. I'd also love for you to follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Podcast. You can email me at inniskirtpodcast at gmail.com and visit my website, inniskirt.com. I would love to hear from you about any guests you think would be a good fit for the show. Once again, thank you and see you next time.